Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we are looking at movies from the mid-80s, mid-1980s. And Daniel, why are we picking this? What was our thinking here? I'm glad you asked, Ian. Well, as many of you may know, depending on when this goes out, it's either the day of or maybe the day before the release of a new Ghostbusters movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which, you know, we don't have to spend too much time on in this show. Obviously, neither of us have seen it. We're not we weren't cool enough to go to the Comic-Con screening uh, from a month or so ago, but I think I can safely say neither of us are particularly excited or even interested in this motion picture. Not uh, overly, but I'm still going to go see it. You're still going to go? The okay. person that I'm married to is very excited about it. Oh, there you so. go. <laughs> so you, yeah. When, when that's the case, you got to do it. Yeah. I would never have seen The Nun in theaters, for example, were it not for similar <laughs> circumstances. But it's, I mean, no judgment in terms of the film until we've seen it. Uh, we don't know. It could be amazing. could be terrible. But the trailers are banking really hard on this, not just nostalgia for the original film and for the 80s in general, but for a really like reverent nostalgia where the framing of the movie, it's, it doesn't feel like a sequel to a SNL comedy from the 80s. Right. It feels like the next saga in, in like a Star Wars-esque franchise where it's... It's, go, it's, go ahead, very weird, it's a very weird tone. You're right. Like it's... <laughs> it's it's hinting at all these things like they're massive massive moments and i mean i get that it's got lots of fans um but it just like when you look at the original movie it doesn't really fit that mm-hmm. yeah i mean the whole joke of the original movie uh, is that they're like schlubby exterminator types that they're not i don't know i keep thinking i i know i tweeted this already but like it would be like a sequel to this spinal tap where it was like 40 years ago they rocked the world or like, you got like little glimpses of the corner of a stonehenge exactly <laughs> you got like a kid and... in the amp or in his like father's garage and he finds an amp that goes to 11 it's like you don't know who your father was kid he played the greatest solos in the world cut to nigel grinding a violin against his guitar like it, it's <laughs> it's so strange to me and i know like the the very clearly selected Comic-Con audience that saw it tended to really like it. So it, it will hopefully please some people, but I was, we're thinking in general about, you know, we're coming out of a glut of real like heavy eighties nostalgia in recent years with things like stranger things or uh, the it movies. Um, some of which has been pretty good. Some of which has been less. So it's, you know, like anything else qualities all over the place, but and in general, like I, I, you're a little bit older than me, but growing up in like a, a generation before me that holds a lot of 80s films as like classic films, like classic right. 80s movies. And I would argue a lot of those films aren't really classics so much as they are nostalgic movies, which is not a bad thing necessarily, but I think it's a distinction worth making, which is something that I was thinking of recently too, because I rewatched for the first time since like high school back to the future which is a movie that i was a little bit dismissive of when i first saw it because i'd never seen it in full till i was like 14 or 15 and seeing it at that age when you're also discovering like foreign language movies and kubrick and scorsese it's very easy to be like oh this populist film <laughs> uh, <laughs> like i liked it fine but i was just like oh it's a cute 80s movie but rewatching it recently I'm like no this actually is like really great 
It's a really well-written film, great performances. It's very entertaining, but also very thoughtful and well-designed and put together and also just plain fun. Um, and thinking this is one of the, I would say, rare like 80s movies that actually genuinely lives up to being a modern classic. But uh, got us thinking, hey, this would be a fun topic for the show. We've done... 80s adjacent stuff before but we haven't done the mid 80s which is probably the thickest hive of like the classic 80s movies things like back to the future and ghostbusters both of which have been discussed on the show um and ironically neither of us actually picked ghostbusters even though it uh, (laughs) it inspired the episode yeah and i i like i'll say for my own picks um i ended up kind of leaning away from the theme of like popular movies that are associated with the 80s in like a big vibrant way like i'd say my three picks one of them is probably like a classic 80s movie although it's maybe not seen in quite those terms because it's a little bit darker and more violent one of them was a notorious failure when it first came out and was a horribly botched release and then now is seen i think by a certain audience as a classic of film but it's also a disputed film and not not to everyone's taste and I can see why. And then one that's kind of an outlier to the entire, to the dominant cinematic trends of the time and feels like a throwback to the world cinema of 20 years prior, 30 years prior. So uh, I didn't lean too much into Hollywood picks, but I think I still hopefully chose films that uh, can speak to trends and uh, uh, that were happening in, in film uh, right. in the mid eighties. Well, my first movie, um, I think does speak more to to the 80s populist classic and whether it really is as good as it does it hold up as good as people remember or not so I guess we could start with that should we start with yeah that? by all means okay so I'm going to talk about the karate kid and uh the moment I'm picking I I actually watched this not too long ago to kind of see okay what were what are some good moments there and I'm actually picking the moment where Mr. Miyagi gives uh, Daniel his birthday present, which is actually his karate robes in which he's stitched um, this emblem, this patch that uh, Mr. Miyagi's wife made for him like 30 years prior. And it's, it's got like the classic uh, sun with bonsai tree logo that's people probably pretty well associate with the Karate Kid franchise. And and um, one of the things that really stood out to me, I mean, obviously that's a touching moment because not too long before that, um, you get Daniel kind of going through his old things and you and you found this patch so you know that it's coming from his wife. And the fact that he gives it to him as a birthday present, there's a lot of meaning with that. And, and Daniel recognizes that and he says, you know, Mr. Miyagi, if you ever want this patch back, I will understand. And Mr. Miyagi says, I know that you understand. And then they move on from there. And I think it's a great example of not saying too much, right? That conservation of dialogue that we always talk about. Because, of course, the unfinished part to that is, I know you understand, and that is why I'm giving it to you. But he doesn't have to say that, which is kind of makes it a little bit more impactful. Uh, And I, I just think it's a really nice moment between those two characters. And when we talk about Karate Kid in a larger sense, I don't know where you stand on this. Do you kind of see it as one of the ones that's um, built up with nostalgia? Because this was a very popular movie back in the 80s. 
Do you think it's the one that doesn't necessarily hold up? What are your views on it? I don't know if I've seen the film in full. Like, I feel like I have. I think it's hard to say because I haven't, if I definitely haven't seen it since I was like at the oldest 13. Um, And I think like, again, like, have I ever actually sat down and watched it front to back from beginning to end? Because I know, I know I've watched parts on TV. I know that, uh, I mean, I know like all the really iconic beats. I know the general structure and sort of themes of the story. Uh, you know, I could probably describe the whole film in fairly accurate detail, like not scene to scene, but beat right. for beat and do okay. But it's like, I, I know I never like rented it from the video store or watched it on my own time in that regard. And I wouldn't have seen it in theaters. Um, so I don't know if I've seen it really in full. So it's hard for me to really say to what extent it's, um, it deserves its, its classic status or not, but it does it does definitely feel like one of those sort of like on the line ones that people debate, like, yeah, is this a great movie or is it like a great eighties movie? And that being, are, uh, is that a distinction without a difference? Does that distinction worth going into? You've seen it more recently. Where do you stand on right. it? Well, the, the thing is, is that when I, even though this was very omnipresent when I grew up, I didn't really watch it. Like it wasn't a movie that I watched as a kid. And I mean, yeah, like you said, you know, beats about it. Like it's, you, I've probably seen scenes here or there on TV, which could have been from this or one of the sequels. When you're that young, you don't know nor care. You don't distinguish that. But so it wasn't a movie I ever saw. And it, it got to a point where it was embarrassing because it's like, well, everybody's seen Karate Kid and I haven't. And so I just kind of ignored it. <laughs> and then finally, I'm like, I really should just watch this stupid movie. And I did. And I ended up like really liking it. And so I can say that I, I found it to be a really genuinely great movie without having the nostalgia. Like I, I just don't have it for it. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe there's, maybe you will feel the same way, maybe you won't, but, but I did. And so that's when you mentioned this idea of how are they really great or not? And I thought, well, that's when I'm actually dissociated with as far as nostalgia. So I thought I'd bring that up as a, as a case that actually worked quite well for me. Mm. That being said, it's, like it, it's got very standard beats, story beats. Like it's not, it's nothing groundbreaking in that sense. I would say it's very much a movie that is elevated based on its main performances. And if those performances and the casting wasn't as, as solid as it is, I think it would just go into the ether. Like I really do. Um, but the performances are so good. Like Ralph Macchio as Danny LaRosso is great <laughs> like he really is his career didn't really go anywhere after this like he was always known as the karate kid and got pigeonholed but he, he's genuinely great he's got this kind of like cocksure attitude about him um even though he's not really that popular of a kid which is kind of an interesting thing usually when kids aren't popular in movies they act awkward but he's he's kind of got this really uh this big confidence about him, even though he hasn't necessarily done anything to earn it yet, which is, it's fun. It's fun to watch. Um, and Pat Morita as, as Mr. Miyagi is great. And those, the relationship between those two is actually really well built. And the scene I, the scene I pointed out, I think is a great showcase of that. Like you really feel their relationship there and it would, it, that would have, that scene would have no meaning if they didn't build up their relationship as well as they do throughout the movie. 
because that's the core of the film. Those two characters are absolutely the core of the film. And that being said, I also think Elizabeth Shue is amazing in it too. Okay. Well, really selling me on revisiting the karate kid. Cause I, I'm in a weird, like I, my relationship to it is guys kind of similar to yours and that I don't really have nostalgia for it, but I like, I have seen it or at least seen most of it, but it's, you know, so far back that it's just one of those movies I saw as a kid. Um, and I, I do, I think the other thing that makes it maybe uh, a sort of text that's like debatable in terms of its uh, genuine sort of greatness or not is the fact that it's John V. Elvidson basically doing Rocky again, um, which I don't think is necessarily a problem, but it does, it is an interesting thing to note that like, you look at the film, it's like, oh, it's like Rocky for teenagers. And it's like, oh, wow, it really is like Rocky for teenagers. <laughs> they literally got the Rocky guy, which, you know, makes sense. That's who I would get to. Yeah. Um, does that sort of uh, bother you at all in terms of like, or is it like an, no. like an issue when assessing the Karate Kid? Honestly, it, I never even thought of it, <laughs> to be honest really? with you. Like, I, it yeah. just, I think mostly because the two characters are, yeah, they're in similar situations, but they're so different. Like like Rocky and Danny are not the same character. Um, at least in my viewpoint, they aren't. And I don't think you have, I mean, you do have Rocky's trainer to some extent plays a role, but it's not Mr. Miyagi. Like his, Mr. Miyagi is mm. a very forefront in this movie. And, and that's what like the movie is built around their relationship more than so, more so than Danny's struggle to be, the top karate like it's not so much that it's more that this uh mentor mentee relationship is really the core of the film whereas rocky it's you know he's overcoming these obstacles to be the best so i think they have different drives even if the story beats are similar okay yeah fair point um cool well i'll have to revisit the karate kid you've made a a strong case for it it is worth I, i always forget that uh Pat Morita was actually nominated for an Oscar for best supporting actor, yeah. which is, it's not unprecedented. It's very similar. In fact, to like Alec Guinness getting nominated for star Wars, the sort of older respected actor and the mentor role. Um, but it, I think it speaks highly of his performance that the character still resonates the way he does. Uh, and this moment you point to, I think speaks to that really well too. And it's always nice in movies when, you know, they can leave something on the table enough that it doesn't need to be said. Yeah. Uh, especially when it has to do with like the way characters like feel about each other. That's just, it's an easy win for me, but it always works. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there you go. That's my, that's my pick karate kid. I just thought it fit the theme that we were going for well. So I wanted to bring it up. Absolutely. Um, I think it had only been three years ago that I actually saw it for the first time. Like it really mm-hmm. wasn't that long ago. Well, and it is also like, not just, is it like a, like a beloved eighties movie, but it, you can tell when you watch it, like immediately, it's like, this was made in the eighties. It oh, feels yeah. <laughs> like an eighties no movie, yeah. um, which is, which I would also say is an interesting comparative point with back to the future where that movie to me also feels very much like an eighties movie, but in a way that it's not, it's not dated so much as it is just of its time and reflective of the time period it was made. And that's, you know, that's an okay thing to be. I agree. Um, so will warn next... you, when you start watching Karate Kid again, it will seem that it will seem dated. Yeah. For like the first 15 minutes, it feels I'm like, oh, is this really as good as it is? But I think that it <laughs> once it fits into its role a little bit, mm-hmm. hopefully you'll 
hopefully you'll see what i did but who knows? well i'll uh open try to be open-minded i mean as we were saying off camera like i i'm in my euphoric <laughs> era of just liking every movie i see you just need to no see it what. in theaters and you'll be good yeah yeah it was pretty good <laughs> four out of five that's my my standard go-to on letterbox these days um okay i'll i'll shift to a film that i is the most like sort of classic 80s movie in my list and one that i have a lot of nostalgia for even though i didn't see it till much later on dvd but is a film that i watched over and over and over again and its franchise was one i was obsessed with for a long time and that is james cameron's debut feature the terminator which uh i think we're both fans of i think it's fair to say that you like the terminator a lot and i think this is the first movie i saw nudity in nice (laughs) when we're going back to 80s nostalgia i mean that's something worth being nostalgic for (laughs) um this is so i wanted to talk about sort of movies you grow up with in general with this one, because something I was thinking about this with like star Wars too. I was having a conversation um, where I was sort of giving a lukewarm defense to rise of Skywalker. And someone was saying, Oh, but there's so much dumb convoluted stuff in that movie. That's, you know, doesn't make any sense. And it's just like there for fan service or it doesn't uh, for stories convenience. It just comes from out of nowhere. And as it comes like, a, like a left field twist, to? this was not you, but it could have very well <laughs> have been. been. And I said, well, you can say the same thing about return of the Jedi. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker being siblings is very stupid. We all just accept it as normal because we all grew up with it. So it's just always what we've known. When you really take a step back, it's a dumb twist that doesn't make any sense and really only feels like it's there. So we don't feel bad that Luke doesn't have a girlfriend and everyone can be happy at the end. But we all just kind of accept it. And I think I I could make an argument that that's just as egregious as you're actually a Palpatine surprise. Um but I was thinking like there's a lot of films that if you watch at a certain age and if you watch over and over again, you almost can't see the flaws or at least maybe that's another way to phrase it is like you can't imagine it in another way because you didn't right. have time to sort of think about it. You were too young and you didn't have time to speculate before you saw it. Uh, and I was thinking about this with the Terminator because it's only in the last few years that I've really come around to thinking this movie on paper is kind of stupid in that it's, if you really like to describe it, it's like, it's about in the future, there's, you know, this war between what's the remnants of humanity and robots after a nuclear war. And the robots send a assassin back in time, a robot assassin to assassinate the mother of the human resistance leader. Only they don't know anything about her other than the city that she lived in and her name. So he goes back in time and then like grabs a phone book and looks up everyone with that name and goes around and starts killing those people. And to do this, even though he's only like being sent back in time to assassinate a Denny's waitress, he shows up (laughs) at a gun store and like packs the most absurd arsenal of like Uzi nine millimeter and this, you know, pistol with this red laser sight and asks for a phased plasma rifle. And Dennis Miller's like, Hey, just what you see, pal. Um, (laughs) When you take a step back, it's like, this is ridiculous. Like, cause you could argue, well, he has to defend against Kyle Reese. It's like, well, I don't think he knew Kyle Reese was being sent back because the Terminator was sent first. So from, I don't think he would know that, but also even if he does, it's like, it's just the dude. He can (laughs) theoretically just strangle these people to death. And then of course the absurdity, everyone points out that it's this infiltration unit and it's this seven foot bodybuilding Austrian man. Like (laughs) Arnold doesn't, you can't blend in a crowd when you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, But so, and I really wanted to specifically highlight the 
gun store scene because one, I just, I think it's a, a memorable scene in its simplicity. It's always nice to see Dennis Miller in a movie. Um, also, I, I don't know why, but when Arnold starts loading the shotgun and, and Dennis Miller says, you can't do that. And he's like, wrong. and just blows him away. I don't know why that's not a meme reaction more because it feels like it really should be like, it's so perfect. But um, that to me on some level on paper is kind of the silliest thing in the film, you know, that he's stocking up, like he's going to war with a country and he's going to kill like one person who has no idea what he is and that he's coming at all. Right. Um, and also he's a robot that's like basically indestructible. And yet when you're watching the film, it and so many other scenes, they never feel silly, even though they technically are. And I don't, there's a certain je ne sais quoi to why. I think on some level, you know, James Cameron is a very talented filmmaker. Like he makes the movie, he makes it look so much better than it should based on the budget it has. Um, but more generally, I think it's just the conviction of Cameron, but also his cast. You know, no one ever feels like they're, winking at the camera or that they're not taking it seriously or that they're just there for a laugh. It really does. It takes this sort of simple, almost childish premise, but treats it with just the right, not that it's like a super serious dreary and dry movie. It's very exciting and very watchable. And there's all sorts of little flourishes in the cast and the characters that I really like, but it takes it with just the right amount of seriousness that while you're watching it, you never actually question the inherent silliness of the premise or the details you really get pulled into the story and to me that's when we talk about not just 80s movies but blockbuster filmmaking and a certain type of escapist entertainment that really starts to flourish in the 80s of these sort of um, high concept science fiction and action and fantasy type movies where it's very easy especially in a current a modern sort of internet age to be nitpicky and annoying about things and sort of sit back and try to feel smug because you're smarter than the media you consume. But I really think that the, uh, the film carries itself with enough conviction that you never question it in the moment. Um, and I certainly like, it was, it was years and years that one day I was like, you know, it is kind of <laughs> silly, but at that point it's like, I'd watched it for so long that it and, and had embedded so many of the scenes just in my brain that it never would have occurred to me. Um, and the gun scene to me is like an embodiment of that, but really it kind of stretches across the whole movie. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point you make evidenced by the fact that honestly, I never really thought about how ridiculous it is until you just mentioned it. Like <laughs> never really, that's never even really crossed my mind. I'm just like, Oh, this is just a cool scene that shows that the Terminator, you know, doesn't know what time period he's in necessarily because he thinks all these guns exist when they don't mm -hmm. yet. And then, and uh, he's not going to let anything stop in his way. And just the humor of like um, a gun wait list for the Terminator is kind of what I got out of that scene, right? Because obviously he's not going to wait for that. I also think that what you say about, you know, the cast and the crew taking it seriously really takes a, a different tone when you think about Arnold Schwarzenegger's um, persona in the larger culture, right? Because a lot of people think of him as a silly action movie star that doesn't know how to act. And he's got this accent that everybody makes fun of. Um, and so the fact that he's in the role and you still don't get that, like you still buy everything that he's doing 
mm-hmm. I think adds another layer to, to what you're saying there. I mean, yeah, he, didn't, always, he didn't have ahead, that reputation at this point, but mm-hmm. I mean, we would have seen, we both, both of us did not see Terminator in 1984. We would have seen no. it later when his career is already established. So Yeah. And it was not my first Schwarzenegger <clears throat> movie by any stretch. Um, exactly. Yeah. I definitely had seen like predator like a million times <laughs> before I saw the Terminator. Um, yeah. And I mean, to add to your point too, I think that that's something that's always kind of annoyed me when people like, Oh, I can't take him seriously as a villain. Cause it's Arnold. I'm like, man, you watch that movie. He's like, he's a scary force. Um, and I think too, it's kind of a shame that Cameron and he haven't worked to get like they've I think they're identified as being a pair similar to a lot of actor directors but they've only done three movies together one of which is True Lies which is well, probably one like of the 50 percent of Cameron's filmography though <laughs> yeah that's true too um I, I remember there was like a, a a click hole headline where it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger cast as King of the Navi and Avatar 2 and I was like <laughs> I want this to be true so badly yes. but Cameron seems to he gets Schwarzenegger in a way that not a lot of other directors do. The only other director I can think of who got Schwarzenegger, albeit in a different angle, is Paul Verhoeven with Total Recall. And that, that's much more playing up the sort of comedic aspects of his personality. But in different ways, each of them sort of got how Arnold could be used and what his strengths were. And Arnold, to his credit, seems to have a very good sense of like what his strengths and limitations are. And when he's working with the right filmmaker, um, can sort of build a really strong and interesting uh performance out of it like yeah it's limited he has a very select range but when it's in the right role with the right guy it really works right um yeah i think that's a good point too that like in the canon of schwarzenegger films like i think he's i think he wins out as like the best action star of the 80s uh in large part because i think consistent quality of work like there's a couple dogs in there but like the fact that Commando is one of his most entertaining movies, and I would rank it like B-level Schwarzenegger at best, I think speaks very highly to the quality of work he did. And then even something relatively disposable like Red Heat is like pretty watchable. I mean, it's not especially good, but it's not <laughs> the worst thing, which, you know, you compare that to some of the stuff that his peer Stallone was making at that time, uh, you know the comparison does not speak highly for Sly, but I don't know. I just, uh, I I think that's a good point in terms of the, the way that this film carries itself with a different energy than it could have in other hands and the other Schwarzenegger films show what that might've felt like still fun, but not like a great movie. Yeah. And I still like seeing Schwarzenegger show up. Like the last Terminator movie was whatever, but (laughs) <laughs> it was kind of cool to see Arnie back in it, right? Like you're like, yeah, yeah. Once he came on screen, you're like, yeah, yeah. Didn't even see it, <laughs> which is criminal. If I had told fine. that, you know, well, I mean, I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. <laughs> but if I would have told like me at like 13 that like there's going to be at least two Terminator sequels that come out, and you're not even going to like reach for Netflix to watch them, you're not even going to make the slightest effort. Like you're crazy. These are the best movies ever. I mean, really, it's just the first two, Terminator 3, even then. I was like, oh, Terminator 3 is pretty bad, but, you know. So, so yeah, yeah. That was my, that's my first pick. Awesome. Yeah, I love the Terminator. It's really it's good. good yeah. I think it's Cameron's best movie still. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, Aliens and Terminator 2 are also really exciting. And as much as it's easy to be snide about Titanic, I think it's a pretty exceptional piece of filmmaking. And I think you're a fan, too. I'm on board with Titanic, yeah. 
Uh, fun choice of words. <laughs> oh, but, um, you know, like he, he has a, a pretty good track record. Like True Lies is probably his worst movie and it's still a pretty entertaining Schwarzenegger vehicle. But I don't know, something about the Terminator, it's a mix of like elevating the material again, that it is so silly, but it doesn't feel like it. And also that it's, it wasn't a, like a low budget movie necessarily, but it's lower than what it achieves. It in feels terms like of... a, it feels like an underdog film in a way, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, like something that it, that achieved success in spite of itself, I guess. Yeah. I, I it think it does so. seem smaller. It does seem like a smaller movie, a big idea in a small movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he makes it work. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the Terminator, go check it out. <laughs> it's really good. Yes. Okay. Should we move to something a little bit uh, lighter? Yeah, let's yeah. do it. This one's not going to take very long. I just wanted to mention it. So <laughs> my, my moment is from 1984's movie Top Secret. And this is the spiritual sequel to Airplane. <clears throat> so it's like Zucker Zucker and Abrams uh, goofy spoof movies from the 80s. And of course, people will know like Naked Gun and Hot Shots and all those kind of movies. And this is sort of the forgotten sibling of those it stars val kilmer as a pop star turned secret agent in a world war ii i'm pretty sure it was a world war ii yeah maybe yeah and uh a plot that he's he's basically got to unravel um and the moment i want to talk about is pretty close on to the film before val kilmer is even introduced they kind of introduce his music first as a big pop star and so they set up like the spy story and then they cut during the credits to this song sequence, which is like a beach boys ripoff called skeet surfing. <laughs> and they've, and so it shows a, basically a music video with a bunch of like California surfers going off catching waves. There's like a big, a big rush of them and they're going running into the ocean with their surfboards and then they pull out their rifles and then they start <laughs> skeet shooting as they're surfing and it's just the most ridiculous thing. And when I watched that, I just laughed my ass off. It was so funny. <laughs> and it, it, it sold me on the movie immediately. Like once I saw that, I was like, okay, this is exactly the right type of ridiculous, goofy humor I am in for. And I am on board with Top Secret. And of course, I was not disappointed because the rest of the movie is actually quite hilarious. Uh, I saw I saw a review from you not too long ago on Airplane. You're not an Airplane fan. I'm not. I, I want to be. I know. I think you like Naked Gun. I love the Naked Gun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I'm very curious to see what you think of Top Secret. This is another one that I don't know if I've seen in full. Okay. Because um, I know there was like a period in my life where I saw, I didn't see Airplane, but I saw like a sort of a collection of spoof movies. This was around the time that I would have seen like the Hot Shots movies, um, which I think I've seen both of. But again, I don't know if I've seen them in full or not. Um, and uh, some of the lesser Leslie Nielsen vehicles in the 90s, stuff like Wrongfully Accused. Right. Um, I never, I haven't seen 2001 A Space Travesty yet. That's the, <laughs> I have that is to me the yet. Mount Everest of bad Leslie Nielsen comedies. <laughs> They're probably our worst ones, but something about that one feels special. But I will say I, what I like about this gag in general is just it's such an absurdist idea because watching Airplane again, like there's hints of like a weirder sense of humor and like a 
I don't want to say it's not edgy, but like just a, just an off and offbeat and different style of humor and like those absurdist gags. Um, but for me, Airplane is very much a conventional uh, spoof movie, which makes sense because it was like kind of the first one. Right. But it's very much just like disaster movie spoof and also like these sort of really specific wordplay puns sometimes done visually that don't really tickle my fancy um but then with this you see them like yeah it's a spoof of like world war ii sort of uh adventure action movies men on a mission type stuff but then it's also like a spoof of elvis musical comedies yeah um but this joke it doesn't it doesn't really feel like it's necessarily riffing on either of those for its humor. It's just the absurdity of the idea itself. Um, it kind of reminds me of, and I, this might've even been the same year, but in uh, Strange Brew, the Bob and Doug McKenzie film, which I don't know if you've seen. Uh, yeah, a while okay. ago, but yes. There's a bit where um, like a reporter is like on scene being interviewed or something. I'm going to get the details mixed up, but like he ends up getting involved in a fight and he just knows Kung Fu. And there's this like elaborate Kung Fu scene and it's just, it feels like that similar wavelength of just like anything for a laugh, like just what weird sort of thing can we throw out there, which I can, I can see why it's not for, for everyone. But I do think with this film, you see like an evolution in their style of humor, where to me, airplane feels very like, very simple in a lot of ways. Like okay. here's, here's the Saturday night uh, fever scene, um, which I think is awful. That isn't, oh, it's just. It goes on that, so long. I like Airplane quite a bit, but yeah, that's I'm not a fan of that scene. The one joke in that scene that is really good, though, is when they talk about it being a rough place and, like, you see, like, two, like, girl guides start, like, they get into, like, a knife fight or something. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, and then, like, the drunks at the bar are just kind of in the background being sulky. That's a fun little misdirect. But, which is, I think, a glimpse of, you know, like, yeah, there's, there's a sort of obvious sort of uh, juxtaposition there that fuels that joke, but there is the sort of just the absurdity of seeing those characters behave that way and that sort of really you stretch the absurdity here where like there's not like yeah there's a sort of pair there it doesn't make sense to fit skeet shooting in with surfing but it's not like an obvious juxtaposition the way that like girl scouts getting into a bar fight right. is where it's like that doesn't happen like it's such a bizarre that if we describe it i don't think it sounds funny to people it sounds very much like that's so random humor but yeah. in context it actually is and i want to say if you look at the billboard charts their other hit songs are also have some reference to skeet they're all shooting shooting yeah (laughs) it's like skeet usa and they're Mm -hmm. all like beach boy puns yeah which is a level of confidence too that that's like a that detail is a background keg you don't necessarily notice that when you're right just absorbing skeet shooting it's in and of itself so or skeet surfing rather i will say there's a bit of an ulterior motive with picking this movie um because i know that all of the big uh, movie distributors like studios are listening to our podcast i know that they are and sure. i just want to make a plea that top secret is not on blu-ray and mm-hmm. i will please please release it on blu-ray that's all i want just please yeah. release it on blu-ray do you know who has the rights i don't actually know i'm wondering what the logistics would be of having like a, a zaz box set of like airplane naked gun trilogy and this and i don't know what else you'd put in there maybe ghost i know one of them directed ghost um i don't remember which probably one. put hot shots in there honestly hot shots yeah. yeah um it's hard to say like where they sort of because then they sort of left it for a while but then they did like basketball i think 
Oh, did they? I think so. And then or one of them did. Like, I mean, they're all to me, it's just one person with three bodies, <laughs> yes. which is not fair, but you know, whatever. Uh, and I want to say at least two of them, or maybe just one, were involved with <clears throat> excuse me, scary movie three. Yeah, and, that makes sense. Which and makes sense to just devolve from there. Yeah. I will say, like, scary movie three has its moments. Um I'm not going to go on a big defense of that movie, but it's not terrible. Okay. I, I can't be mad at a movie where George Carlin plays the architect from the matrix reloaded. I just, I, I can't be mad at that, <laughs> but oh, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be nice for it to have a physical release. It would make it easier for me to, I'm okay with the it. box set as long as every movie has its own case. It's own case. Sure. Yeah. Not to, you know, not to get too much into the, picky and details of movie collecting but that's fine I, uh, yeah i just like every movie in their own case that's all that's fair yeah i mean you gotta <laughs> man's gotta have standards that's right <laughs> yeah i mean it'd be nice to have uh, i'm almost surprised it's not like a blu-ray double pack with you know naked gun or something but there might be a rights issue and also i wouldn't buy that either because those no. are hideous yeah I got into a, like Don't a, get me started on those. I got into an argument with a buddy where I was like, I'm waiting up for a good Blu-ray of I think it was 25th hour. It's like, oh, you can get it in this double pack with he got game. I'm like, no, I can't. Like, do you do you know me? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, they look good. I'm like, I don't care that the quality of the disc looks good. It's about <laughs> what it looks like on the shelf. Yep. I can't. And Spike Lee made a movie in between he got game and, and uh 25th hour. I think he made a couple movies. So, like, even in the order of his filmography, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, I can't do it. Yeah. So Right. Maybe some episode we'll have to do a whole episode on what we want from a movie collection. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I mean, it's Film Junk used to do them, but it's been a while since they've done a Blu-ray Manifesto they, that, episode. That's the peak of all podcasting. Truly, <laughs> yes. Three or four hour shows about how to organize your movie collection. And multiple ones. There's like four or five <laughs> of those episodes. That's what I'm And they change their own rules. <laughs> And also, I think they're bad rules because they insist on, like, at least Frank does on the, like, alphabetized. I'm anti-alphabetizing all the way. I am, too. I mean, if that's your system, go for it. But don't try to make it the standard. That's right. Let me be free. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I um, think we're good with Top Secret. I just really wanted to mention it's an unknown comedy. And so if you like Airplane and Naked Gun or maybe only one of them, like Dan, um give top secret a try because it doesn't get talked about very much and i think it's very funny mm-hmm. well from all this laughter let's go to one of the dreariest movies ever made <laughs> once upon a time in america sergio leone's massive gangster epic which i wasn't sure if i was going to talk about but i thought it was an interesting contrast to the uh, sort of decade of hollywood film in the 80s because like this film really feels to me like it never could have been successful in this decade you can tell it's an idea that he initially, well, he initially was developing in like the 60s after The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but a lot of the development for it conceptually was in the 70s and made in that atmosphere where by the time it comes out in 1984, the market for, and the sort of studio uh, place for a multi-hour gangster epic that's told in a non-chronological, non-linear order that makes no efforts really to make its protagonist likable at all. They're some of the most despicable characters you'll see in any gangster movie. Um, and that lacks closure, like, and also like by its virtue of being a, a gangster period epic would also involve like a massive budget. Like this feels like such a 
retrograde film for the time it comes out. And it's not at all surprising that it was hacked to pieces by the studio and got terrible reviews and bombed horribly. And it was only when, you know, European critics saw the, the not the full cut because they keep adding new stuff. So there really is no full cut, but the longer cut and the correct sort of chronology cut that um, when sort of American audiences saw that, that the film's reputation began to rise. So I like this as like, an out to me this is one of the classic movies of the 80s but it is so antithetical to what 80s movies were that i think it's an interesting contrast but the scene i want to talk about it's sort of a simple idea and i'm going to simplify it as much as i can and not go into too much detail about what the thing actually is but in the opening sections of the movie um it's already sort of bouncing between timelines doesn't necessarily like ease you into the story uh, it kind of, it starts in media res and then jumps around all over the place to figure it out. There's really like three different timelines in the film, the gangsters as kids, as adult men in their thirties, and then as old men um, in the sixties. And we open in the sort of thirties, 30 year olds timeline towards the end though of that story. And there's sort of, there's a lot going on that you don't really you can't necessarily figure out all of like, you know, people are getting killed because they're looking for somebody that De Niro character noodles is on the run. Um, there's a speakeasy with sort of a lot of action going on and secret backroom dealings. But throughout all this, there's this off screen sound of a telephone ringing and it goes on and on and on for a long time. And it, I know like if you search like telephone once upon a time in America on Google, there's tons of like, what's with the annoying phone? Why won't it stop? Because, you know, a phone's ring is designed to be kind of irritating. So you pick it up right away and it just goes on for so long. But there's a specific detail that's really small, but so precise where you finally are in a room, I think with De Niro and the phone's ringing and then they show in close up the phone and then it rings and De Niro's hand enters the frame grabs the receiver, lifts it off. There's a beat, and then the phone rings again. And then you see his hand go on and start dialing numbers, and the phone rings again. And you realize, oh, this is still off-screen sound. This phone ringing is coming from yet another timeline in the movie, and it's sort of converging in this moment. And there's a lot that can be said sort of thematically in terms of it being a representation of the character's guilt and about how the film is really about memories of the past that aren't totally accurate and bleed together and bleed in with fantasy and hallucination. But what I really love about it is just the sort of confidence it shows from a filmmaking perspective where it's this, it's this big massive film with all these different timelines and all these extras and all these sets and all this money spent. And Leone's still taking the time to have this weird little almost playful experiment with sound that it does add a lot to the film. I think it's worth having, but it also is a ton of work for a really specific point that is the kind of thing that in the grand scope of a big movie, it would be easy for a filmmaker and for producers to be like, just cut that. Why are we spending time on this? Like there's so many things, so much things to do. Why are we focusing on this? But it's such a virtuoso bit of editing. And I like that you know, even in his last film and a film that it very much feels like a last movie. And I think he knew it was his last and has this sort of sense of weight of all the movies he'd made prior, which wasn't a lot, but they're important movies. So it still has this uh, sort of significance to it. He's still kind of being playful and experimenting a little bit and just having fun with film form itself. And that's just really fun to see. So even in the midst of like a film that can be pretty ugly at points, um, 
there is still a playfulness that makes it a really enjoyable watch, I think. So yeah, that's a good moment. Uh, I've not seen the movie, but but the way that you're explaining it, I like that. Do you ever find out where the ringing is from, or is it just we do? Yeah, yeah. it's okay. uh from the opium den that uh De Niro's character is in in one of the timelines. And is this um, used more of a scene transition, or is it just something that comes later? Or it's a, yeah, I mean, it's or... kind of a, eventually it's sort of it is revealed the reveal of the phone is used to introduce this, that setting. Gotcha. If I remember correctly, um, there's a lot of different timelines. So they kind of, <laughs> <laughs> um, especially depending on what cut of the film you're watching, but yeah, I mean, I just, I think it's such a, there's something so like, especially knowing sort of paying attention to filmmaking in terms like on screen versus off screen sound. When you notice when there's the reveal, like he picks up the receiver and you think, Oh, he's answered the phone. And then it rings again. I can't help but smile. Just be like, it's like Jurassic park, clever girl. Like it's just so (laughs) it's such a fun, you know, little touch that uh, I love it. Yeah. I think that fits our premise of the show really well. (laughs) Cause you're right. If it's a big expansive movie, but when the filmmakers taking the time to do small things like that, I mean, mm-hmm. those are those are the signs of a of a solid filmmaker and i th- like i think that they make the movies a little bit more memorable with those small things right i mean yeah we we remember huge massive set pieces but even within set pieces i would say that what really ties us to them is when we can have small moments in that right that we can remember mm-hmm. um but i like that i like that it's a sound detail rather than rather than a visual detail trying to think of uh how many sound details we've had in our, <laughs> in our show not many no it, it to me it feels very leone too because i mean his films have like the annual morricone scores which this does too and it's fantastic um that man didn't really i don't think he ever really just churned out a score they were all pretty good but um I'm thinking about in like for a few dollars more where it's like the chimes of the watch that kind of are the are a running motif in the film and kind of guide you emotionally. Um, there's some bits in most of this is more score, but in like good, the bad and the ugly that um, play around with your ideas of like what Western music sounds like. And of course, like the, the sort of the sounds of like gunshots in his films too, to me are so specific of like that spaghetti Western sound. So it was always, I think it was something he was always interested in. But um, this is such a, and the fact too, that like most uh, the movies he made before were all Westerns, except the Colossus of Rhodes, which is like a sword and sandal type epic. So this is like literally a sound that really wasn't even a factor in the movies he made before at all. So on some level, it's just like, Hey, he gets to play with a new sound. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> I get why good. it annoys people though. Cause it is like a long stretch where this phone just keeps oh, ringing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not I've seen some people describe it as like 10 minutes it's not that long but (laughs) but that too is like indicative of the film like when you're watching the long cut like knowing like this is a film that's going to take its time that just the act of answering a phone is going to be like stretched out across different timelines in the story and you're not even sure where that is and I think it's a good way because this is like in the beginning of the film it's a good way to introduce like this is the kind of movie this is which I think is important for for movies like this to do right yes no, that's a good point. Yeah, so it's and, like, if this is not for you, leave now. Yeah, It's like the pie-eating scene in A Ghost Story. It's like, if this is too much for you, Just it's okay. We get it, but this is what this is, so. 
Yeah, well, Leone is no stranger to taking his time. True enough. That's for sure. It's a good thing he did die after this. Like, if his next movie would have been like, he'd still be making it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like years long. Oh, man. Yeah, so, I've not seen this one. I, I should give it a go. I think it's on my to watch list. I just haven't gotten around to it. It's one of those ones that kind of, I, I honestly, I just kind of forget about because mm-hmm. nobody really talks about it. Not often. I mean, yeah. Other than I, I saw a really good YouTube video about it um, being the death of uh, gangster cinema. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, that video is okay, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you're right, though. It's it's and it's funny because if you read uh, Christopher Frayling's biography on Leone, he talks a lot about how like making the film. Leone was very concerned about the film feeling like a knockoff Godfather because he had the idea before he was even offered Godfather and turned it down in part because he wanted to make his gangster epic. Um, but this was like a perpetual concern for him. And sure enough, when the film did come out, a lot of the critique was, well, it's no Godfather. I think it's a pretty different <clears throat> film. Fundamentally, it has some similarities. Obviously it's a gangster film. It's settings are pretty similar. De Niro is there, although he's playing a vastly different character than, than Vito. Vito is like the quintessential likable gentleman gangster and noodles and max are just not that at all um but yeah it does it's it's a hard film because it's clearly made like i think anyone who sees it can see it's made with real craft like it looks amazing the score is fantastic um but at the same time it's a long film it's an ugly film it's a pretty like vicious movie there's a very infamous uh, scene of sexual assault which is very uncomfortable to watch i think it's in the context of the story and the characters it makes sense and i actually think that in comparison to how leone had filmed and edited sequences of sexual violence before which felt eroticized or in some in some ways not romantic but like sensational this one is not it really captures the sort of ugly heinousness of the act but it's also an ugly and heinous scene like it's it's a hard movie to watch. And then the performances, like I, I've come to really appreciate De Niro's performance in the film. But when you hear, oh, De Niro in this big gangster epic, he's got to be giving the performance of his career. He's very muted. It, it kind of reminds me of like a precursor to his work in The Irishman. The Irishman's probably like this even more so, but like yeah. he's not playing a particularly sophisticated or intelligent leader or even a particularly like on the surface interesting person. It's a much more like, ordinary character for a guy who always plays really exceptional people um this guy feels on paper that he's a bit more like of an empty slate in some ways but i don't know it's a harder movie to appreciate than something like godfather and to be clear it's not as good as the godfather but that's probably few movies are yeah Um, so but i i and i i will say like for you and for anyone listening like i would definitely recommend the film but know when you're going into it that it's it can be a heavy watch hear a telephone ring for 10 minutes you're gonna hear a telephone ring for a long time <laughs> um so crank the surround sound <laughs> you want to think it's your own phone there you go um but but yeah i'll pass it off to you because i've spent okay. too much time on this film okay my last film is going to be uh well we're going to actually move out in 1984 because <laughs> that's where all of our movies have been so far which was Good a year. pretty <laughs> massive year for movies. If you take a look at all the movies released that year. True. But, I mean, it was interesting enough. George Orwell wrote a whole book about it. That's right. 
that's what it was about. Yeah. <laughs> it was about like Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a read. <laughs> I'm going to go to 1986 with, again, another James Cameron movie, Aliens. I, I will say I do think this one might have a little slight nostalgia bump for a lot of people. I'm going to throw that out there as my okay. controversial take. But anyway, anyway, Aliens. So I was watching this a f- couple months ago. So the moment isn't one that always stood out to me, but it's one that I noticed this last go around that did stand out to me that I really appreciated. And it's later on in the movie when everything's kind of just gone to hell and most of the Marines have been wiped out and there's only just a small band of survivors left and they're trying to figure out what they can do to survive. Um, And so Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character, is she's kind of becoming the leader of this group, but not really yet. And then you also have Bill Paxton's uh, Hudson. It's Hudson, right? It is Hudson. Yeah, Hudson. Hudson, sir. He's Hicks. Yeah, that's right. And he's uh he's the Marine that's kind of losing his mind, right? Like he's he's freaking out, which Bill Paxton is very famous for, is this role and the freakouts that he had in this role, right? The okay, it's game over, man. All that all that jazz. He's so good. <laughs> what I really like is in this the scene I'm talking about is where they're trying to figure out what the heck are they going to do. So there's not many of them left. And Ripley basically has to talk down Hudson. And in doing so, she's claiming the leadership role because she's, of course, one of the one of the most famous characters of the 80s, movie characters of the 80s, for sure. And everybody kind of sees her as this this um, this leader, right? this this strong leader, warrior, whatever. She's not really a warrior, but people kind of see her in that light. But she is a she is a strong leader, although she kind of has to she's always confident in herself, but she works up to that leadership role in Alien. She takes that on in a few small moments and eventually she she takes it on. Um, But then most of it is like her on her own as well. It's almost like a predator situation, whereas this one, she has to be the leader of a group. Uh, And she completely takes on that role with Hudson. Because he's freaking out and you see she basically calls him out on it and he says and lays out exactly what situation they're in. And he says, basically, I can't I don't know the exact wording, but it's like, I can't handle you doing this. We can't handle you doing this right now. You have to see the realism of the situation and deal with Mm -hmm. it. But then what really catches me is she almost immediately she does something very smart. She gives him a role. She says, what I need you to do is I need you to go to this place and I need you to get the blueprints because we got to figure out our environment and what we can do. And you need to get, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this, which not only did she rip into him, but now she's changing gears and she's making him feel like a valued member of the group and giving him a purpose that he can focus on instead of focusing on the hopelessness of the situation. And in that, that is a scene where she is really proving her leadership because I think it's easy for movies to just say this character is the leader. So they're going to be the leader of the group, but Cameron actually shows us why she's the leader because she's making these kind of 
these smart decisions. And it helps us buy into that idea much more because it's not just saying that she's a leader, it's showing that uh, with very specific moments like this. So that just really stood out to me the last time I watched it. And it made me a pre and I've loved Ripley because I'm a big alien fan and I've loved Ripley for a long time, but this really made me appreciate why she's become such an iconic character. Yeah, it's a really awesome pick. I love this film, um, which maybe isn't, I didn't see it till high school though. So I didn't like, there can still be nostalgia for that period of my life, obviously, but it's not like a film that I grew up with because I saw it in like 12th grade, I think. Um, But I like the moment you highlight and how the details of how it shows Ripley's leadership, not that just she takes charge, but that she then is able to like direct as it were to the point that I almost wonder, like, I wonder how much of this is either consciously or subconsciously rooted in Cameron's own, like having to lead massive groups and coordinate people. I think there's a similar ish moment. It's she doesn't emerge as the leader quite yet, but it's a good example of her undercutting the Marines authority when she starts to describe to the marines about what she knows about the creature and what she's seen um and she starts to get pretty emotional because who wouldn't right horribly traumatic and watched a lot of people that you know were co-workers and they weren't necessarily her friends but people she knew and cared about to some degree die in front of her but um they cut the marines kind of cut her off and like vasquez makes a comment about um you know all i need to know is what they look like and where to aim they all laugh and hudson has a line about uh you know, Vasquez saw that uh, they're looking for alien. She thought it meant illegal alien. And they're kind of laughing and rib- ribbing each other. And Ripley cuts them off with the, are you finished? And that alone is like pretty authoritative, authoritative for her to take that step with these very alpha Marines. And then she takes a step forward to Vasquez and with complete sincerity is like, I hope you're right. I do. This notion of like, I really hope that it is just like a bug hunt. You guys can just go in and squash them. I don't think it is. I'm afraid it's not, but I do sincerely hope that's true. And you see Vasquez take that in as like, she recognizes the gravity of it. And I like that in context too, because it's interesting that this film, there's a certain like, like there was like an an aliens, colonial Marines video game and stuff. And like the Marine aspect of it. It's like this film, it kind of satirizes Marine culture, like pretty obviously. And in the same way that Full Metal Jacket does a year later, where it's like, this very alpha, masculine, aggressive, you know, bravado and how that completely falls away under fire. That as soon as you're in a firefight and things are chaotic and people are dying, you resort to being like a child and it's just panic. And it's, so it's interesting that like, in some ways people kind of forget that and they're like, yeah, the Marines, they're awesome. It's like, they're really not, you know, Hicks is pretty competent, but for the most part, they all collapse under pressure. Um, and I like that uh, your moment too really speaks to that. This one's this movie, this whole movie though, and I think Cameron in general is really good at this. Is great with like little details. I love when uh, Ripley's talking to the board of um, Waylon Yutani, and they're talking about like, well, we've never seen anything there, and there's colonists living there. And she says, "How many?" And he goes, "I don't know, 60, 70 families." And the way it's written, we're like, "Oh, you're thinking 60, 70 people." And then it says family. So it already sets you up to feel like, oh, that's, oh, wow, that's really a lot. And it's, it's a simple trick, but it really works. It's just very effective in terms of how we're going to interpret the language. Yeah. I, uh, like, I'm not as big on aliens as a lot of people are, um, yourself included, I think it sounds like, 
like I'm, I'm much awesome. more I'm much more on the the alien is this alien is a superior film to this um but I do like I I, I just think it, yeah like you said there's a lot of small details that work and it's just a very well constructed movie mm. like like we said with the Terminator Cameron knows what he is doing he's yeah he's got a good handle on things on what he wants the movie to be and he's got a very clear vision of that which which comes through Mm -hmm. i will say i probably prefer alien as well i go back and forth right now i probably prefer alien um it's just a little bit more i don't know it's such a pure horror experience that it's really hard to argue with um and the minimalism of it in a lot of ways like it's a it's a big budget special effects movie but it's so simple in its characters in its story um even in its its production it's not simple on a technical level it's very complex but it's like one setting Mm -hmm. you really get to know so i probably prefer alien as well but i think aliens is uh a worthy sequel and i also really like alien 3 i'm around i actually i'm i've always kind of liked alien 3 like obviously not as much as these other two but i've always kind of liked it it's a good movie yeah i mean it's I, I don't know, man, like the fact that people act like that's one of the worst sequels in, in general, although I think people are kind of coming around to it now has always been a bit weird to me because even when I was like more down on it because I was like, how dare they kill off the characters I like from aliens, which now I don't I don't care about. Like, yeah, whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. a really effective way to, to plunge us into a new territory from the start. Um, but even when I was like a more sort of neutral on it, I still thought it's not that bad, guys. Alien Resurrection is so much worse. Yeah. Um, and uh, here's here's the hot take of the moment is I kind of like Prometheus more than Aliens. <laughs> My hot take for the moment is I kind of like Alien Three more than Prometheus. Oh, well, I, I like Prometheus. I love Prometheus. I know you're like I a really big do. fan. Yeah. Well, it's, this is getting litigated online because, as always, now if you're an old director, someone will ask you, "What do you think about comic book movies?" And Ridley Scott was like, they have bad scripts. So, of course, we're like, oh, sure, you wrote Prometheus. Like, well, he didn't write Prometheus. First of all, he directed it. But, yeah, Prometheus' script has some problems, I think would be fair to say. But it's also, like, made with real gusto. And even if it was the worst script ever, it doesn't take away from Mr. Scott's point. So, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I'm a a big Prometheus fan. I really am. It's good. I, I I like Alien Covenant too. Yeah, that one. Yeah. It's I wasn't a big fan of that one. The stuff with Michael Fassbender as weird Frankenstein character is great. I really like all that stuff. The rest of the characters are pretty bland and yeah. the alien stuff is not very good, which is a problem when the movie's called mm-hmm. Alien Covenant, that the xenomorph scenes are just not very great, but there's a there's a kernel of that movie I actually find really strong, and frankly, if there's going to be more alien movies, I'd rather it just be Ridley Scott doing weird stuff with them than True. what they could be. I think my issue with Alien Covenant is that, which is not a fair criticism, but I think I went in with a little apprehension because I didn't want a sequel. Yeah, because I think that thematically, having Prometheus end where it ended is exactly where it should have ended, and that we mm-hmm. never find out what they what they find. I think that's much more suiting, but again, that's, I don't know that that's a fair criticism to, to lay on the next movie, but. I think it's fair. I mean, especially because the movie that we got, I'll defend parts of it, but it's not perfect. Yeah. Like the fact that the characters are 
so bland despite a really good cast when you look at the people in it it's like these are all really talented actors but i don't know just a bunch of generic types which i think you could argue make a similar criticism of prometheus but it has more characters that stand out to me i think yeah i think what i like prometheus is that it's i think that its vision is so grand that it kind of wins me over on all the small points that maybe don't work as much Mm -hmm. like i think the idea that they took this alien franchise about scary alien creatures and they they basically said hey what if we did a movie about the meaning of life Mm -hmm. (laughs) and searching for the meaning of life and i'm i just i was so on board with that that small things didn't bother me and yeah i just really i don't know somehow we're now we're talking about prometheus but i mean there's a lot to get into i do feel like i need to defend my position at some point for some point it's a film that when it came out i was all on board with and then i've fallen a little bit from that but i still like it a lot yeah i mean the surgery scene alone is like the whole movie could have been terrible but that scene is still like we're seeing i'm on board with you there (laughs) um okay i'll close this out with uh a film that i would argue is very much the opposite of prometheus in that it is like perfection there's not a frame i would change (laughs) not a line which is Akira Kurosawa's Ron, which of all the films uh, that I've sort of picked for this week is the one that feels the most out of place and out of time, even though it was actually quite successful when it came out. And uh, Sidney Lumet actually successfully lobbied for Kurosawa to be nominated for the Best Director Oscar, which he should have won. I haven't seen Out of Africa in quite a while, admittedly, but I don't think Sidney Pollock's work on that film is quite equal to what Kurosawa does with this one. But it has been a while. I should probably rewatch it. But in any event, um, so Ron is, it's Kurosawa's final, it's kind of his final like great masterpiece, although his next film, Dreams, is also quite good. And it's his last epic period, sort of, it's not really a samurai movie, but it's similar period action film, we might say, even though it's, it's very slow and deliberately paced. And it's an adaptation of King Lear that also mixes in a lot of uh, elements from, Japanese folklore and history and right at the beginning you have the classic scene of King Lear with his children who in this case are sons instead of daughters and talking about you know like what he's going to do with his kingdom in his old age but he's trying to make the point to his sons about being together to be strong and he says you know he passes an arrow to his son and he's like break this and one of the kids does like okay no problem and then he takes a bundle of arrows bound together and says, try to break this. And they can't because it's they're bundled together. And it's, this is actually like a little parable in, in Japan of like, you know, one arrow breaks easily, but many arrows united uh, don't. But I like that the scene asks a really simple question. It's like, well, how hard can it really be to break a bundle of arrows? And the one son just stands up, just rips them apart. It's like, see, it's not that hard. And it, it kind of shatters the sort of mo- the, um, the moment and the scene is clearly like it's this breaking point and that son ends up being the one who is the one that defies his father and is cast out of the kingdom even though he's the one that has his best interests at hand and i love the scene for in such a simple direct way just kind of announces the thesis of the film that like yeah no groups united can still be broken pretty easily because what this movie is largely about is this sort of fracturing of all these different groups and how this this guy's empire that he's worked his entire life to build just collapses right in front of him 
and he he loses everything. And Kurosawa, you feel he's sympathetic to that character, but at the same time, he also does not shy away from the fact that this dude is a tyrant who crushed everyone in his path to achieve this. And one of the characters that so thoroughly defies and destroys him is like the son of uh, one of the people that he crushed on this path who is, she has held to this vengeance for decades since. And she finally gets to achieve it here. And I just, it's such a simple but direct way of like, and just tonally too, it, it tells you like what this movie is, is what it's going to feel like. Because Kurosawa is a filmmaker. There's a darkness in a lot of his movies, but he tends to skew with some exceptions like Throne of Blood. Um, he tends to skew, I would say, fairly hopeful. Yeah, you know, Ikaru is, Ikaru is a very dark movie, but it's about, it has a very positive and hopeful, like, well, we can make a difference if we really sort of push ourselves to it. Seven Samurai, it's like, well... You know, the class divides remain, but the samurai do successfully defend the village. And, you know, there's a chance for characters to continue with their lives and make something of the time they have. And Hidden Fortress is mostly just like a fun yarn, even though it has a class consciousness. But as he gets older, you start to see that darkness that is really embodied in something like Throne of Blood, which is also Shakespeare adaptation of Macbeth. Really kind of high and low, I would say he's. Yes. Moving that direction, too. Yeah you see him sort of going in these sort of really darker, more pessimistic places. And this one I think is right from the start is such a powerful way of addressing that. Uh, and it is, again, it's, it's clever. This idea of like this simple, you know, fable of like, or this, uh, a parable like, Oh, many arrows bound don't break. It's like, well, yeah, they can. Like, it's so simple, but it's like perfect. I, got, I love it. It just reminded me, we got to throw in the obligatory Simpsons reference. That reminds me of like <laughs> uh, the, the mini golf episode where, where Lisa's trying to, trying to calm Bart's mind and says, what does the sound of one hand, hand clapping sound like? And he's like, like this. Yeah. <laughs> she said, no, Bart, it's a rhetorical question. Lisa. True. And that's kind of the energy of the scene where it's like this, this smart Alex son, you can feel the dad's frustration of like, listen, you little brat, I'm trying to teach you an important lesson here. And you're getting smart with me, um, which is in some ways the basis of the conflict uh, between those characters more broadly. Uh, it's not specifically the arrow thing, but it's a good microcosm of that <laughs> yeah. whole conflict. Um, yeah. And it's, also, to me, a good example of how the film and you could argue Kurosawa's whole career blends different cultural influences where there's Japanese uh, in inspiration, there's Western inspiration with Shakespeare stuff. Like there's so many different cultural uh, traces that can be found and and yet it still feels like a coherent, cohesive vision. So, yeah, that's a that's a really good moment. When you said Broken Arrows, I, I, I was trying to think what it was. But now that you mentioned it, yeah, that's a very, very clear scene from that. From that movie i didn't realize it was that son though i don't know if i picked up on that i think it is now i'm worried that it's not no, but think, it should no, be i think you're right yeah yeah no that's that's definitely a scene that stands out and you're right it does set the tone for the rest of the movie um but i i'm a big fan of ron like i i really am i agree with you it's it feels out of place here like the fact that kurosawa was still making movies in the 80s seems weird like it mm -hmm. this does seem more i don't know if timeless is the right word but like if it was made in the 70s i wouldn't have batted an eye right if it was made in the late 60s i wouldn't have batted an eye 
Um, it just has that kind of timeless quality to it. Maybe mm-hmm. part of that is the period piece aspect to it. Um, well, it feels like a byproduct of the sort of golden age of world cinema in the 50s and 60s, where you had Kurosawa, Fellini, Bergman, Truffaut, Godard, even though I don't really like Godard, but all these sort of uh, worldly international filmmakers in Europe and Japan, especially, and Saudi Arabia, I would say, in India as well, who were like really at the forefront of the art and also at the forefront of the conversations about the art. And by the 1980s, you know, that's really kind of largely absent. And Kurosawa and Bergman are kind of the last two giants standing because, uh, you know, Bergman makes Fanny and Alexander three years before. And it's, and certainly they noticed the parallels. Um, Kurosawa wrote Bergman a letter talking about, you know, looking forward to the work that they would both do as old men. And uh, there's even a line in, there, in, in that letter somewhere about like, let us hold together for the sake of movies. It's like, <laughs> oh, they're the best. Yeah. And it's kind of uh, nice that they did, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. That they were still making solid hits. Yeah. Solid, and that they solid pieces of quality anyway. And that they got to go out on like high terms. I mean, they made films after both of them, but both Fanny and Alexander and Ron are very much like declarative, like this is my last epic. Yeah. Um, although I will say it's, it's comforting to me that Kurosawa's last film, Matadayo from 1993, uh, I don't think it's an especially good film. Like it's, it's, it's good, but it's not in my Kurosawa ranking, it would rank pretty low, but it does ultimately feel like a more hopeful and optimistic movie. And I like to think that after processing some dark periods in his life and making movies like Kagamusha and Ron, which are so bleak, he kind of got that out of his system and was able to, and also the fact that those films were also internationally very successful. So it kind of, I think revitalized him, um, allowed him to, I don't know, leave with some grace and uh, with his head held high. So that's, that's a comforting thought. And the moment you're talking about, I also like it just as a, like on a surface level as kind of like this subverting expectations, right? Cause you're like, mm-hmm. okay, he's giving a parable and you think that that's, you know, where it's going to end. <laughs> and then the, the sun actually proves it false. Um, but I do like what you say as demonstrating the thesis of the movie is really what it's doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's saying, yeah. yeah, no group can't be broken, it can fall apart. Yeah, which is also fun too. I like that you point out, like proving the father wrong. The fact that, like, right from the start, the film is telegraphing everything this old man has built his entire life believing is bullshit, and he's being shown it in the simple way right in front of him, right from the start. Um, yeah, and there's an interesting like. There, towards the end of the film there's a scene where like a scroll of prophecy is sort of just dropped into darkness and this idea of like it's another simple moment but, and small moment but like the future is lost and it's gone and it's so simple and it's it's almost too on the nose but it just it's like perfect it's it, it's so great that you know this big complex historical epic that is half adaptation of japanese folklore half kinglier adaptation can be boiled down to like these really simple finite things yeah that's a good point i also just like when platitudes are called out for their platitude in this right yeah i i like that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it kind of reminds me of my dinner with andre oh yeah have you seen that where where the where andre keeps like throwing out these ridiculous yeah platitudes right these ridiculous statements about life Mm-hmm. and then they actually take those statements and dissect them so as the conversation goes those are actually dissected and either 
um, strengthened or completely proven false or yeah you know, so i i like when movies do that when they're not afraid to say okay there's these this parable that you've heard so much about or this saying that you've that everybody says let's actually te- put it to the test yeah and the sun does put it to the test yeah <laughs> this knee it's so good and i love like i mean we could get into like a really specific scene shot by shot breakdown um and i'm sort of going vaguely from memory but the way like kurosawa's compositions are very he's such a precise sense of blocking like he painted his storyboards are like paintings and they're beautiful but like the scene is so mannered and precise that that moment where the sun breaks it we get these cuts of like people reacting and even on just a physical level it's like the scene is broken it was this sort of painterly pristine quality and now we're out of that and oh you gotta love it it's it's a filmmaker who's like, and I, I want to say it might have been Sidney Lumet himself who described the film this way, but like, it feels like the kind of film that like you would need to be an old master to be able to make, but it also feels like something only a young man with that type of passion and intensity could make. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's a miracle of a film and it definitely, it, it feels weird to say it was nominated for best director against out of Africa. Like it just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice if you could have got that win, but well. yeah, I mean, he got he, he knew he, how how beloved he was by then at least. Yeah, so I think so. Yeah, yeah, good pick. Excellent. Okay, there we go. Six great movies from the eighties. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. You decide. Watch Watch uh, Karate Kid and make a decision for yourself. <laughs> a, a variety of films, I think. Yes, definitely covered... a variety of films. A wide span of what 80s film making looked like i mean top um, secret and once upon a time in america are pretty close but otherwise <laughs> we run the gamut yeah hilarious films equally <laughs> um it's interesting though too like this will set you up perfectly to see ghostbusters afterlife there you go so be ready <laughs> <laughs> you'll know all the kurosawa references when you see them oh yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm uh I'm not going to go this weekend, but I'm sure we will see it at some point. Mm. And I am definitely watching Wheel of Time this weekend. Oh, yeah? I don't know if you're a fantasy fan or not. but I don't I don't get to keep up with a lot of fiction. Um, I've seen the advert for this, though, because every time I go to the, the Cineplex theaters for Canadian listeners, Cineplex is a movie theater chain here. <laughs> um, they play the little, like, Amazon Prime ad for it that would yeah, I know, also show. Wild that they're showing a the TV it. show. It's, yeah. it's not even just that it's a TV show, but it feels like like a 30-second YouTube advert. And seeing that in a movie theater it's between trailers stresses me out. Also, every time I go to a movie and they don't show the licorice pizza trailer, which has been every time, I leave a little <laughs> bit angry. Oh, it's man. like, I have, this is such a small want. I'm just, I just can't wait for when they bring back the, the Free Guy trailer. Oh, like it's been a while let's uh let's throw this back in the rotation <laughs> uh part of me wants to almost watch it while it's on disney plus just to have like i feel like it's like a catharsis of like now it's done i've killed it <laughs> now for me like it's it's not as annoying as the free guy trailer but it's the kingsman trailer oh, every time i yeah. go to the movies it's there and i'm like why is this a trilogy who asked for this yeah nobody or not me anyway not, I saw the first one and I thought it was okay and then promptly forgot about it, but I don't know. I thought it was not okay. Oh yeah, you hated it if I recall. <laughs> I really did. 
you hate Kickass as well, I think. I really, really do. But I think you like X Men First Class. Yes. So there's one Matthew Vaughn <laughs> movie you really like, and then everything so else. It's like, have you seen Stardust? Yes. Do you like we Stardust? Actually watched that not too long ago. Yeah, Stardust oh. is good. That feels like way more your wavelength than yeah. uh, than Kingsman does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, tell us what you think about '80s movies. Do you think they're overrated? Do you do you think we're not giving them as much love as we need? Um, do you think I'm ridiculous for liking Prometheus? <laughs> have you seen Top Secret? Yes. That's what I want to know because I don't think many people have. I know Red Letter Media have a video on it, so that might have boosted its profile in recent years. Um, but uh, yeah, are we are, were we pretentious snobs by being like '80s movies? Let's talk about Kurosawa. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if we were. We can handle that kind yeah. of criticism. Yeah. So let us know. Cinem at uh, tweet, tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds. You can email at cinema in seconds at gmail.com. And yeah, you got anything going on, Dan? Um, new YouTube video should be up semi by the end of the month, the end of November for sure. Um, it has nothing to do. Well, it has a little bit to do with movies, but it's functionally about the Dark Souls video games. So, if you have no interest in video games, it's going to be a long hour. But uh, I think it it may be more interesting than just being a fan of for just fans of the games. Although for people who like the games, there'll be a lot to dive into but that'll be coming soon and then for december i have something planned that's much more film heavy that i think will be an interesting discussion but i'll save the details for that one for now awesome all right uh well i've been ian and i'm daniel and we'll catch you next time